Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were like twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb." By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there, and they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. 
but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Virginia. Beloved, there's my opinion and there's your opinion. And then there's what Virginia just read, which is the very word of God. We should ask that he would teach us. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for explaining to us what life means. Thank you for directing our paths. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. I pray this morning as we, as we peer into your word once again that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would allow us to taste and see that you're good, that you're very good. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would uproot the idols that occupy us and that you would cultivate in our lives the fruit of your spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I pray that you would make us like yourself, that you would make us like Jesus. We pray these things in his name, amen. Well, good morning. I, when, I, when, when we started at about 10 o'clock, I thought, wow, I'm gonna have to come way down there cause, and gather us all together. It's kind of interesting how the, 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 the chairs fill out um, as, as we come together. I'm really thankful that you are here. Um, my name's Jeff Wilkins. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and if you're visiting with us, welcome. We are really, really thankful that you're here. We are like lots of churches around the world this morning. We are finishing up an Advent series, an Advent series that, that, interestingly enough, is an Advent series that we've spent looking in the book of Revelation, a book of, of longing, a book of anticipation, a, a book um, that, that, that seeks to, to dream about, but not just dream like you and I dream, but, but, but dream God's dreams about what he's going to do. It's not just dreams, it's reality. So we are looking at the book of Advent or the book of Revelation. We're going to look at the last two chapters, and I, I think, like, I don't need to point this out, but I just will. Um, these are the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, and more than that, they are actually the last two chapters of the Bible. And it raises a question: Why does Revelation? Why does the Bible end with this particular picture? As I thought about that, a verse popped to mind. Uh, Matthew sixteen eighteen. Jesus famously said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
And throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus has said things like, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers, will not, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and, will, and I will never blot out his name or her name out of the book of life. I will confess his name. I will confess her name before my father and before the angels. And yet, the people who originally read this letter felt like anything but conquerors, Right? I mean, you know the story of these seven churches. They are, they're struggling. They're limping along. They're, they're struggling with apathy and materialism and, and lukewarmness and sort of just going through the motions. And, and, and they're becoming more and more marginalized as, as, as people begin to realize um, you're a Christian. It, it sounds eerily familiar, um, doesn't it? So here's the question. Why does God end the revelation of Jesus Christ this way? There's a quote at the top of your bulletin in the reflection section, a quote by Scotty Smith. He writes these words. He says, last words are lasting words. Final images are powerful images. God wants our hearts to be consumed with the vision of our forever. He wants us to see, hear, understand, and feel our awesome destiny, our inheritance, our future, our glory, our home, our hope. Both Scotty Smith, well, what both Scotty Smith and John, the author of Revelation, know is this that this is our vision that this is our future, that, that this is our hope. But they also both know that we live in this, this tension, right? Between the already and the not yet. The metaphor that the Bible gives us to describe what our lives are like is that of a woman in the pains, in the throes of birth. We... we, we we can feel the baby moving around inside of us, but we do not yet see the baby. No doubt those of you who have had the joy of giving birth toward the end of labor have thought, perhaps you've even cried out, will this ever end? Is, am I right? Yes, I think I've, I've seen it three times. That's what Kathy said. And also, keep your hands off me. Um, never mind. That's how, that's how the original readers of this letter felt. And if we're honest, it's probably how we feel from time to time. John knows it. And he knows that we need meaning and we need direction in the present. And, and we need a certain hope for the future. And, and that's exactly what he gives us in this passage. So how does this glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth give us meaning and direction in the present? Well, 
Think about Revelation 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. What, what is John showing us? Well, first, when John uses the phrase heaven and earth, he's not just talking about the planet earth in the, the sky that sort of encircles our world. He's not even just talking about the Milky Way, our solar system. In the Bible, the words heaven and earth refer to all creation. I mean, think back to Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What that means is that the heaven and the earth refers to everything. And then John goes on and he says in verse two, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What, what does that mean? I was taught as a child growing up in the church that when we die, we go to heaven to be with Jesus forever. And that teaching is both right and wrong. Um, when the Bible, what the Bible teaches us is that if you were a believer and you die before Jesus returns, you will go to heaven to be with Jesus. You will go to heaven to become a part of this new creation. You will go to heaven to become part of this bride adorned for her husband. But you will be a new Jerusalem. You will be the bride of Christ in waiting. In waiting for what? Well, again, verse two, the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Reflecting on these words, Christopher Wright writes, Christians who talk about going to heaven as if that were their last hope seem to have missed the whole point of the way the Bible ends. Revelation 21 doesn't show us going up to heaven, does it? It shows heaven coming down to earth. What's God going to do when he gets here? Verse five, he's going to make all things new. What does that mean? Well, to answer that question, we have to think back to the source of John's hope. What was the source of John's hope? It was the resurrected Christ. It was the resurrected Jesus. The risen Jesus was physical. He was, he was not a ghost. The risen Jesus ate food and he talked with his disciples about the kingdom of God. The risen Jesus had scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side. The risen Jesus actually invited the disciples. You remember the story. He invites the disciples who, who are struggling with, like, are you for real? He invites him to touch him, to, 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 to realize like, he's, he's really real. But the resurrected Jesus was also very different, Right? Some of his disciples didn't even recognize him when he showed up. And while Jesus' body was physical, it was physical in a way that was clearly different than theirs and different than ours. He inexplicably appeared and he disappeared from rooms, baffling his disciples. There were, there were no categories to prepare them for this. This, this paradox of the same Jesus who was also different is precisely 
what John is trying to communicate to us about the new heavens and the new earth in our passage. He is convinced that the future of the universe walked out of the tomb on Easter morning, simultaneously the same and different. He is convinced that what was true of the risen Jesus will also be true for all of creation when Christ comes in the clouds to make all things new. What that means is that we are headed toward a new reality, but this new reality is not a fundamentally different reality. In other words, if you love animals, or if you love coffee, or if you love music, or if you love sunrises and sunsets, or if you love friends and family and neighbors and neighborhoods in cities, you won't stop loving those things because those things are like a caterpillar to a butterfly. When, when God returns, there will be real substantial change. But here's the thing. When God returns, there will also be real substantial continuity. So what's the difference between what we see now and what we will see in the future? We'll look at verse four. But he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Verse eight, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Look at chapter 22, verse three. No longer will there be anything accursed. What's going to be the difference? This is the difference. That when Christ comes in the clouds, he is going to purge his creation of all of the poison and evil and sin and death that infects his creation. He's going to transform his creation into everything it was ever created to be. But there's more. Look at verse, verses 24 to 26. By its light, by the light of the glory of God and the lamp of the Lamb, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and, gates, and its gates will never be shut and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. When God says that the kings of the earth will bring their glory, who is God talking about? He is talking about those who look to Christ in faith. He is talking about those of you who look to him as your Lord and Savior. When God created humanity, he created humanity in his image to image him. He is the king. We are called to reign over his creation. What does it mean that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city of God? Well, think about this. What what makes a king glorious? What makes a kingdom 
glorious. Among other things, it's the accumulation of cultural achievements over generation after generation after generation. It's the art they produce. It's the literature they write. It's the music they create. It's the architecture they design. It's the styles of food they eat and enjoy. It's the dress they wear. Do you understand what this means? This means that what we do now matters. Cornelius Plantinga writes, what we do now in the name of Christ, striving for healing, for justice, for intellectual light and darkness, striving to produce something helpful for sustaining the lives of other human beings, shall be preserved across into the next life. All of it counts. All of it lasts. None of it is wasted or lost. What this means is that the justice that you long for and are working for, it matters. The beauty that you are seeking to create, it matters. The work you are doing, it matters. The blessings you are seeking to give, it matters. The grace you extend to the broken, it matters. The generosity that you pour out on the hungry and the needy, it matters. What we see in Revelation 21 and 22 is where God is taking us. And what that means is that we should be committed significantly and sacrificially to living redemptively in this world because it matters. All this is to say that when Christ returns, God, is going, uh, God isn't going to start over. He's not gonna wad up creation, throw it in the trash can and start all over. Instead, he's going to renovate and renew and restore all of creation. He's going to make all things new, which gives us meaning and direction in the present. So how does this glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth give us hope for the future? Well, if you read through this passage, what you realize is that you are being bombarded by this kaleidoscope of images that are drawn from the Old Testament prophets and poets. First, there is the new heavens and the new earth. Clearly, a reflection or a reference to Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then there's this picture of this bride coming down out of heaven, a reflection of the writings of the prophets Hosea and Ezekiel. Then there's this holy city of Jerusalem with all of these sort of bizarre dimensions tapping back into the vision of the prophet Ezekiel tapping back into the description of the Holy of Holies, both in the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple. And finally, John circles back around to the garden, an obvious expansion on what we see in Genesis chapter two. Now, what, what do all these different images mean? We can only touch on this. Let's think about this. It's, it's, it's very interesting that when John sees the new heaven and the new earth, the only thing he tells us is that the sea was no more. 
which if you like to go to the ocean during the summer might sound like a drag. But what you need to remember is that throughout the Old Testament, the sea represents chaos. It represents relentless evil. And in the book of Revelation, the seven-headed beast of chapter 13 comes from where? It comes from out of the sea. And the great prostitute of chapter 17, she sits on the waters. And what that means is that when John says the sea is no more, what he's saying to his original audience and what he is saying to us is that in the new heavens and the, in the new earth, the things we fear, a bad diagnosis, the loss of a job, they, they are no more. The things that keep us up at night, the question, will anybody ever really love me? Will, will anybody ever really accept me? They, they are no more. The things that we regret, the words that we cannot take back, the things that we cannot undo, they are no more. The things that we don't think we can survive, like the loss of a, of a parent, or the loss of a spouse, or the loss of a friend, or the loss of a child. They will be no more. And the thing that none of us can avoid, death, it will be no more. That, that's the picture that John is painting for us. That's the picture that God reveals to John. And, 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 and you have to think, what a picture. But it doesn't end there. In the next image, we see this bride adorned for her husband coming down out of heaven from God. What does this bride look like? Well, look at verse nine. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. John looks to see the bride, and what John sees is a city. What does that mean? What is this city? Beloved, the city is not a place where Christians go when they die. The city is not a final destination. The city is not like London or New York or Los Angeles. Rather, it's the people of God. John says that in this, that this city has 12 gates and on its gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And then he says that the walls of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. What's he getting at? Beloved, this holy city represents the entirety of God's people. Old Testament, New Testament, they are all there. And if you are in Christ, you are there. How are they described? This is actually astounding. They have the glory of God and they radiate 
like a most rare jewel. They are covered with all kinds of precious stones. There are these amazing pearl gates. And the streets are said to be of pure gold. What does that mean? Well, let me ask you another question. How do you think God sees you? What expression do you think God has on his face when he looks at you? Well, Jeff, truth be told, I don't exactly know. But given my lust for that woman or for that man, given my dissatisfaction with my job, given with the way that I talk to my husband or my wife or my roommate or my children, given how spiritually apathetic I feel most of the time, my, 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 my guess is it's not a very happy look. What I want you to do is I want you to remember who this letter is written to. The church in Ephesus, whose love for Christ has cooled. The churches in Pergamum and Thyatira who are still dabbling in pagan religion and they're sleeping around with each other. The church at Sardis, who is just going through the motions, but their hearts aren't really in it. The church at Laodicea, who at best can be described as lukewarm. Now, why do I point that out? It's because the beauty and the splendor and the radiance and the magnificence and the glory that's described in this passage is God's description of his people. These aren't just John's words. These are God's words. And what this means is this is how God sees his people. It's how God sees Christians. And if you were a believer, this is how God sees you. Think about how unbelievably encouraging this vision would have been to John's original readers. Think about how encouraging this vision should be to you. And this beauty and splendor and glory isn't the result of our efforts any more than it was a result of their efforts. It's all of Christ Jesus, who the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. It's all of grace. It is all of grace. It is all of grace. Beloved, this is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus is doing. 
And if you're a believer, this is what he is doing in you. Now we can only touch on the last image that we see here. It's, it's an image of the garden. We see it in chapter 22. It's clearly meant to make us think about the Garden of Eden. In, chapter, in Genesis chapter two, there's a river of the water of life and there's a tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month, meaning what? Meaning that the new heavens and the new earth mean life. They mean eternal life. They mean abundant life. They, life in the garden is life the way it was meant to be. Do you remember how Adam and Eve were described in the garden? Naked and unashamed. Can you imagine? The picture of the new heavens and the new earth, it is meant to astound us. It is, it is meant to overwhelm us. It is meant to blow away all of the categories that we have when we think about what, what the future holds for us. But there's one last thing I want to point out. There's one thread that ties all of these different images together, without which all of these images would mean nothing. We see it in the image of the bride adorned for what? Adorned for her husband. We hear about it in chapter 21, verse three. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We see it in the city whose dimensions are the dimensions of the holy of holies in the tabernacle and the temple, which is where God made his presence known. We see it when we discover that there is no temple in this city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple who shine over all creation throughout the city. And we see it in chapter 22 when we read, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Beloved, what makes heaven heaven? What makes heaven heaven? It's at the throne of God and the lamb will be in it. And the glory of this passage is that we're gonna be there. We're gonna be there worshiping him. This is what theologians call the beatific vision. This is what you were created for. This is what you long for. This is, this is what you want because God is who you were created for. What will happen when we finally see him? Well, in another letter that John wrote, he tells us, he says in 1 John chapter three, when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is our hope. Now here's the question. Is this your hope? Is Christ your hope? To those of you who don't know, 
Christ says to you this morning, to the thirsty, I will give from the springs of water without payment. This is an open invitation from God. We are all thirsty. We're all trying to quench our thirst. We try to quench our thirst by drinking in love, by drinking in wealth, by drinking in relationships, by drinking in career, by drinking in family, by drinking in friends, by drinking in experience. And as wonderful and as good as those things are, and they are, they will not satisfy. They are what the prophet Jeremiah calls broken cisterns. But do you know what Jesus says this morning? He says this. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him or her come to me and drink. And if you do, do you know what will happen? Jesus says, out of his heart, out of her heart, will flow rivers, rivers of living water. How can Jesus say this? How can he make this offer? It's because on the cross, Jesus thirsted. John 19, 28, Jesus is dying, nailed to a piece of wood. And John tells us, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said what? I thirst. Friends, Jesus thirsted so that you might be satisfied. Jesus thirsted so that he might be able to say to you today, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water without payment. Because Jesus made the payment. If that's you, won't you come to Jesus? This is an invitation to trust him, that that he did for you what he said he would do. He lived the life you should have lived and he died the death that you should have died so that he might satisfy your soul's deepest thirst, which is for him. Won't you trust him? For those of you who know Jesus, who call him Savior and Lord, and yet you struggle to believe. You can pray with that, Father, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Look at what Jesus says in Revelation 21, verse six. What does he say? He says, it is done. Why? Because I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. Beloved, when guilt and shame and unbelief and doubts come knocking, when they come accusing, when they come condemning, all you have to say is, it is done. Because Jesus is your alpha. He is your omega. He is your beginning. He is your end. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Beloved, This is one of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. It's to fan into flame a faith. It is is to remember. It's to remember not just Jesus' life, death, life and death, but it's to remember what he died for. 
that he might come and make all things new. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took some bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. It is given for the forgiveness of sins. Drink. It's yours. The apostle Paul, years later, decades later, is writing a letter to the church at Corinth and he recites, um, he, he describes the Lord's table. And he says that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he comes again. What's he gonna do when he comes again? He's gonna make all things new. What's gonna happen to us? We are gonna be made like him. Is this your hope? Is this your trust? Jesus would say to you, if it is, come, feed on me. Feed on me at the table. If you look to Christ in faith, this table is for you. If you're just sort of checking out this Christianity thing, what I would encourage you to do is not come forward because coming forward is saying to God and saying to us, I'm in. That's me. I would encourage you, if that's not you, don't come forward, but instead pray, God, if this stuff is really true, would you convince me? And then come talk to me or talk to Aaron. We would love to talk to you about Christ. We'd love to sit down and hear your questions. We would love to, we'd love to hear what you're thinking. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna invite the music, musicians to the table. We're gonna serve them first. And I'm gonna call the rest of you to come forward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the word. Thank you that you were the word become flesh. Thank you that we see your flesh represented before us here in the bread and the wine that was given for us. That you thirsted that we might be satisfied. That you died so that we might live. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Would you give us the faith you require when we come to this table that we might not just eat bread and wine, but that we might actually commune with you. Allow us to taste and see that you're good. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen.